welcome back to welcome. another another version, another episode, I should say, of Light Beer, Dark Money. I'm Sean Noble. I'm Chris Clements. And we are really pleased to have as our guest this morning, because we are recording in the morning, uh, Scott Musi with uh, the Arizona Free Enterprise Group. Is that the correct? Free Enterprise Club. Club. Yeah. I always want to say group. I don't know why. Well, group club. You know, group, club's club. more fun. Club's more fun. Sounds but, more distinguished. Yes. I always <laughs> want to say group. But uh, the Free Enterprise Club has distinguished itself as being one of the leading advocates of uh, anti-tax, anti-regulatory policies yeah, here in the fiscal state. Reform, fiscal reform. Fiscal reform. And uh, this week it had a big victory with uh, some tax reform that passed the legislature finally. Um in answer to um, another, you know, piece of work that they worked on, uh, and some anti two hundred eight right uh, efforts. So you guys have been cranking, and uh, just happy to have you here. Happy to have you on, and uh, you know, love to hear more about you personally and uh, how you came to do this type of work, and and talk a little bit about the legislative session and and what you see for the future. No, Chris, Sean, thanks for having me this morning. Um, yeah, the Arizona Free Enterprise Club, we've been here in Arizona since 2005. Founded to be a group out there that was consistently fighting here in the state, um, at the legislature, even at the local level, um, for free market pro-growth conservative policies, um, to be an advocate for the taxpayer. Um, when you get involved in the process or see how the sausage is made at the legislature, um, you'll go down there and you'll see a bunch of people and in suits and you know uh, maybe skirts and dresses whatever um, looking to you know get things done and usually what they want to get done is on the behalf of government is on on behalf of special interests um, and then you look around and there's nobody there speaking out for the people that can't afford to hire lobbyists can't afford to be in the game in the swamp or whatever you want to call it um, and so uh, that's the reason the free enterprise club was formed formed by a group of like-minded conservatives and you know free market individuals that wanted to stand up against the machine down there. And so, um, you know, been very active on that. We've uh, built one of the largest grassroots operations and uh, conservative grassroots operations here in Arizona. Um, and then this year, um, you know, obviously, you know, set out to, um, you know, address some of the issues, what you discussed before about Proposition 208, uh, you know, dealing with the, um, you know, the income tax increase targeting, you know, small business and, uh, you know, successful individuals, wealthy individuals, um, you know, and on that front, you know, that was, you know, barely passed in November, um, you know, from our perspective, passed um, using deceptive tactics to the point what we would call even, you know, the big lie. Um, the other side loves to use the big lie related elections. We'll use it related to Prop 208 because they went around and said it wasn't going to impact business. Didn't it was it was not even legally possible to tax business through Proposition 208, which was fundamentally which, which means they've never read the tax code. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it mean, was pretty much. Uh, and the thing is that then that's the where they've you know where the big lie came in is is they were sophisticated enough they knew what the impact was. Um, and they just loved it because they can hide the fact when they had to write the language. So when people saw the language, they didn't realize it would impact impact small businesses. And outline for us a little bit how does it affect it, uh, you know affect businesses? Because a lot of people just don't know. They think they bought into this lie that it's a tax on the rich, and the rich need to pay more taxes, and so therefore, seventy five percent tax increase seems pretty good to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always great when you can tax the other person. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, and and looking at it, people think, oh, we'll just stick it to you know 
Bill Gates or you know Bezos or some professional athlete that makes millions of dollars. And so when they look at this and they see taxing the wealthy, that's who they envision. Uh, most people um, don't uh, don't realize that um, small businesses, whether they're S corps, LLC, sole proprietorships, um, you know, individual hardworking people, um, that uh, they they pay all their taxes through the individual tax form. It all flows through um, from their small business onto their individual form. It's just a creature of our tax code. It's just how we've done it for, for decades. And unless you've operated any of those types of entities, you wouldn't know that. And so, um, you know, they, they, you know, they, they took advantage of that. The, the left, the unions, the out of state groups that spent millions of dollars pushing this thing wanted to hide that fact. And so, um, this initiative passed, we'd had prop 208 and all of a sudden now Arizona was saddled with the ninth highest small business income tax rate in the country. Um, second highest in the Southwest next to California. And wow. we looked a lot more like after the prop 208 passed, we looked a lot more like California than we did Nevada, Utah, Colorado, even New Mexico. Um, nobody, um, it, nobody had a higher rate than us except for California and made us completely uncompetitive in that space. We were, um, we were already after it passed, saw you know small businesses announcing that they were going to leave and reorganize somewhere else, um, and uh, and and you know it was going to it was going to be a drag. I think everybody agreed it was going to be a drag, um, but the people pushing it didn't care. This was about sticking to the rich, and it's what they wanted. Well, it's about education, right? Well, the, the claim it's about education. It's yeah. about <clears throat> union power because yeah. the the other part of the big lie was that this really wasn't money that's going into the classroom. This was to support just bigger administration, administrative budgets and spending on the administration level. Mm -hmm. um, so, so what? Uh, tell us about what happened uh, in remedying this problem. Yeah, what, um, before the session began, um, our organization, you know, strategized on what to do and set forth and put goals this session on how to address Proposition Two Hundred Eight. And our goal was to. Um, do everything we can to mitigate and undo the damage. Um, uh, first stop dealing with the surcharge that was in Prop 208, is 3.5%. Um, figuring out a way to mitigate that and bring that top rate back down um, from 8%, which was the ninth highest in the country, uh, back down to 4.5%. Um, we also set out a goal to say we need to also pass the largest tax cut in Arizona history and do it in a way that benefits all taxpayers and helps small business. Small businesses were pummeled the most by the, the COVID shutdowns. It was big business, corporations. They all got to stay open while small businesses were shut down. And so we wanted to pass a, a big tax cut. We set a marker of at least a billion dollars. Um, we wanted a bigger tax cut than what was included in Prop 208 and make sure that uh, small businesses would be one of the primary beneficiaries. And so um, laid that out, worked with the lawmakers down there on how that can be done, how it can be fit within the budget, do it in a way that's responsible. Um, that isn't going to just completely, you know, you know, re result in cuts or an imbalanced budget in a couple of years. And what was approved last week and signed into law yesterday by the governor um, accomplished those goals. Um, we passed the largest tax cut in Arizona history. Uh, when fully implemented over the next three years, will be nearly two billion dollars in ongoing tax cuts. Um, included in that was uh, what we called the aggregate tax cap. Um, to ensure that we brought that top rate down. So under the plan, no taxpayer, no matter who they are, will pay more than 4.5% of their income to the state of Arizona. Um, that is the rate that was in place pre-208, and that'll be the rate going forward. Nobody pays more than that. 
Coupled with that, to make sure all taxpayers benefit, is we also bring all the other rates down into what's being called the the flat tax, um, even though technically it's a two rate two bracket plan. Right. Yeah. Us, us tax wonks look at this and they keep running on flat tax. I'm like that's that's not flat tax, um, but they they've been calling it the flat tax, setting the rate at two and a half percent. And so um, under that, um, we're going to have when fully implemented a a single rate of two and a half percent for all taxpayers, and then high earners if you hit that. You know, 208 surcharge threshold, you'll be, you know, basically capped at four and a half percent when fully implemented. That's awesome. That's a, the two and a half percent is a that's so. So this is not only something that you've been deeply involved in for years, but this is the culmination of of Governor Ducey's desire to to get the income tax rate as close to zero as possible. This is as close as we've gotten to zero in. I don't know how many years since, well, probably since we've had a state income tax, right? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, this is, you know, Governor Ducey campaigned on it. We were pleased that he set the marker out beginning a session um, on being aggressive and bold on this issue um, and also provided the flexibility for, um, you know, lawmakers and other people that analyze and have been working on this issue to be able to provide input on crafting a, you know, tax plan that worked. And so um, appreciate the support that he led on it. Um, and when you talk about historically, yeah, we, this is historically low since before we had an income tax. In the 70s, our top rate was was over 8%. Wow. Um, Symington started working and shipping it away, got it down down under, uh, you know, down under 6%. And, you know, over the last, you know, 20 years, got down to 4.5, which made us competitive with the region. When you look at 4.5, um, Utah's just under 5, um, Colorado's just under 4.5. Um, Nevada doesn't even have an income tax. Texas doesn't have an income tax. And so that kept us at least competitive. Obviously, our, if we can get rid of the income tax, that's great. But bare minimum should be is, is we should be comparable to our competitor states. Um, 208 threw us completely out of whack. And so um, this package, it fixed that problem. We're now, we're now once again going to at least be at least competitive with our, with our neighboring states. And, you know, with that two and a half single rate for everybody else, set up a position where we can realistically look at saying the limiting the income tax is possible. Yeah. What, uh, will, will there be, a, an, an effort to try to refer this to the ballot? There's a lot of chatter about that. Um, from the, uh, from you the mean other to overturn side. it. Yeah. So, yeah. so if a, if a, a law the same interests from Oregon, that, that spearheaded well, California and California coming back and it, they can to, they can collect a certain number of signatures to then refer the law to the ballot for validation, I guess. Yes, under under Arizona's constitution, you can refer every any any measure passed by the legislature except for budget bills; those are non-referable. Um, anything else, you can refer to the ballot if you collect enough signatures uh, to qualify. Um, and so they're they're talking about it. I think they're upset. I think it's a lot of anger on them wanting to do it. Um, obviously, if you have enough money and these, you know, these out-of-state groups spent over 20 million bucks to to put, you know, 208 on the ballot and to get it passed, um, if they have money, they could potentially do it. I think it's going to be far more difficult and problematic than they than they think it will be um, for two reasons. Um, one, um, for as much as they want to talk about the tax package and what they want to refer, um, it was actually broken up into a couple different pieces into different bills. Um, and so if they're wanting to do a referral, they're going to have to refer multiple bills, carry multiple clipboards, mm. and collect a lot more signatures than they think they're going to have to collect. And that was strategic. Well, it just works out that way. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> come on. Um, secondly, Giving one of the people too much credit. Yeah, it's just, it's just it was an accident. 
Um, the, Nothing the, is quite an accident, I don't think, especially in politics. Another thing is, is part of that, too, is that one of the components of the tax package, that max aggregate cap that I was talking about at 4.5% um, to you know, deal with Proposition 208, that was put into a separate bill. And not just was it a separate bill, but it was in a uh, revenue budget bill. Hmm. Um, and so from our perspective, is non-referrable. Um, it's the rest of the tax package, the, the flat tax, the, all those things that are in there um, that they want to be looking to refer. And th they keep talking about how this was a giveaway to the rich. Well, if you take just that tax bill and refer that to the ballot, um, that actually is a good broad-based tax cut package that benefits everybody, not just on property. I mean, not just on income taxes. It includes a property tax cut. Hmm. It includes tax relief for businesses by lowering their business class assessment ratios. Um, it even includes uh, language in there to expand what people can do for t charitable deductions and what they can deduct on their, their tax codes. And so if you're looking to say, well, we want to refer this because we don't like bringing our rate down to two and a half, you're also going to be referring all of those other elements to it as well. And they won't just be talking about a two and a half flat tax class warfare deal. They're going to be talking about how they are opposed to a homeowner's property tax cut, how they're opposed to increasing the charitable deduction, how they're opposed to, you know, reducing commercial, you know, property taxes. Um, they'll be biting off more than they can chew. And so I think that'll be a problem. And then I think the other problem they'll have is, is this is a difficult environment to, to do any sort of petition gathering right now on a, on a, on a constrained time frame and how much it costs. Um, you know, I don't know if anybody's noticed, but um, it's really hard to get people to work right now because we're paying yeah. people not to work right. with everything that's going on. Um, I'm driving around and I see signs, you know, with you know certain you know fast food places offering 18, 19 bucks an hour yeah. to to get people to work. Um, you know, some places can't even offer full hours, and so if they're going to try to refer something, they're going to have to get figure out a way to get people off the couch and get them here to to collect signatures. I think that's going to be a lot more difficult than they think. Um, and uh, you know, between that and just the fact that it's 120 degrees outside and everything else, uh, there, there's a lot of a lot of uh, you know problems they're going to run into um, in trying to do a referral. Um, we'll see if they do. I mean, obviously, it's up to them if they want to. We think it'd be a bad idea. Yeah. Well, it'll be challenging. It's not a great environment politically to try to to roll back something like this. I mean, I think the Democrats nationally have have created a lot of problems for the progressive side of of the aisle um, in trying to get stuff done because their overreach is just insane. Yeah, well, even even on a national level, I mean, the idea of uh, raising taxes is not going over very well, in the, you know, in the Congress. And they keep saying that they're going to, you know, push these these bills through. But I, I, I don't I don't I, I can do math and I don't see the numbers of, uh, of doing that. So. No. Um, but the question I had for you is, I mean, this is, this is monumental what, what just happened. It's, we've, we've been talking about something like this for, for several years. But in, in the avid of 208, like, where did we fall short in defeating it? Like, what, what happened? What could we have done differently? Because something like this will come down the pike again. And so what do we need to be prepared for? Um, I think, you know, in a couple different things that they did, I think one of them we talked about before, about how they were, you know, deceptive on how they passed it. I think if they tried to come back and do the same thing again, it'd be much more difficult, um, largely because of how we restructured our tax code. Um, 
they would have to refer something that would look completely different now. It couldn't just be we're going to do a surcharge and and we'll stick that on the ballot. It wouldn't it wouldn't work. Um, they would have to go in and start tinkering with the rest of the tax code, and they would have to raise taxes on other people than just the wealthy. Um, secondly, part of the package that was just passed dealing with this small business issue is is uh, one of the bills uh, creates a separate alternate tax code for small business if they want to opt in and use that. And um, one of the benefits of doing it that way is it ends the, the, the scam that they were trying to run, which is we're just going to soak it to the rich and we're going to tax the wealthy. Small businesses now will be able to opt out of that system if they want to. Sure. And so if they're looking to, quote, soak the rich, um, they won't be able to also soak it to small business either, which means that anything they do as far as a tax increase would generate substantially less revenue, um, which from their perspective won't be what they really want to do. Plus, uh, you know, from ours, if they try to go after small business, then we can really have that argument and that debate um, and they won't be able to hide it anymore. So uh, I think in those respects, it'll be harder for them to do it. As far as what happened last time, I mean, it, you know, we can look back and relitigate the campaign. I think there's, you know, we were really active on the grassroots side, um, running the you know, running a social media campaign on it. Um, we would have hoped that um, other elements of the campaign would have been more aggressive on hitting that small business message early on. Um, they weren't. And so um, I think there were some elements there of that. But, uh, you know, I, I think that given what we've done and, and the steps we've taken post 208, um, it'll be very difficult for them to try to go back to the ballot and do what they just did again. I thought what, what you just described on the uh, on the business tax, the carve out, so, so that businesses can opt out of, the, of any sort of increase was really inventive, and really, um, I don't know if we've seen that in other states. What, inventive what, is not how the media has been describing it. <laughs> well, uh, well, the media is, you know, the, the, they, 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 the media, especially every morning we have uh, Channel Twelve on for some reason, and they've just been hammering at this. And but, it, but from a, just a tax planning standpoint, for a business, for a small business, an LLC, a subchapter S. To be able to do something like that, where did that come from? I mean, and, and also, is that active in any other states? Um, the idea uh, culminated. Senator Javen Mesnard is the one that ran the bill on this, and um, you know, and the idea was built around the premise that right now, again, all that um, small business S corp LLC income flows onto your tax form, and um, that's just a creature of our tax code. And um, what precludes us from saying, let's just categorize that as an alternate you know, tax and form and apply the same kind of standard, you know, you know, deductions, you know, exemptions that we would have that would flow in other tax forms that we have under our C Corp for publicly traded companies sure. might do the same model. And, um, and you know, we, you take a look at it. There's no reason that, that it can't be done that way. And that's why it, it worked. Um, and so, uh, you know, and again, one of the best things about this is it was revealing on what the, you know, the, the misunderstanding or the lack of understanding from even people in the media um, on this and also fleshed out where a lot of the people on the backers of this, how they feel and stand on this because they kept wanting to talk about the wealthy and um, what this was about and they would have to explain why they wanted to still tax small business to the point though that the argument that they were making at the end was um, this really doesn't help small business and this really isn't um, you know taxing small business because um, the only revenue that's getting taxed is the revenue after you pay all your employees, all your expenses, and everything else. Um, it's just the profits that are getting taxed. Um, and that's not really from the small business. That's individual benefits. So 
Um, just so you know, all the small businesses that operate out there, um, they don't actually operate to turn a profit or to do right. something. It's not really what the small business is doing. They actually just operate to pay employees and right. expenses and stuff. And they're just there to, to it, provide a public service. Yeah, yeah. I sometimes wonder. At, I mean, at no no profit margin. These, I mean, those are Crazy. these type of theoretical arguments sound great. You know, in a think tank or maybe in the halls of a of of you know, the capital, you know, capital building, but out in the real world, that's just nonsensical. You talk to any small business owner, they don't, they don't exist just to pay employees. They exist to make a profit and that's from their small business. And so, um, very revealing. And then just other states looking at this, actually there's been a movement to start looking at doing more of this and bifurcating this out of the tax code. Um, ironically for a different reason than what was done here in Arizona, um, under prop 208, uh, it, it deals with the federal tax reforms that happened a couple of years ago. Um, the, um, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act packed under, passed under President Trump, um, good tax reform, brought down our corporate rates, brought down our taxes on small businesses and LLCs, um, also included the uh, elimination of the state and local tax deduction, a cap on it, um, which really hammered states, high tax states, generally Democrat blue states. Um, in response to that, some states have been looking to set up an alternative small business tax code to allow their, you know, taxpayers to stay in the state and take advantage of an alternative tax that then wouldn't be, you know, would be able to sidestep the salt limitations and the, the impacts that that would have on their ability to, you know, mitigate their, you know, their tax burden. And so Interesting. you're seeing some blue states, Connecticut, New York, and others that have been exploring similar models to what we just did here in Arizona, but for different reasons. Yeah. Um, overall, I think long-term, we think it's actually a, a decent reform because if we can separate um, individual versus what's business income, um, we can have a, it, it's harder to, again, play these types of shell games and, and deceptions with the public. Right. How did you how did you get into this? How, what how did you end up at Free Enterprise Club and and you know what's been your what's been your motivation? Um, started working at the club eight years ago. Um, you know, first uh, kind of found out about them. You know, in my prior prior work uh, doing work in the home building industry, I was doing some you know political work there um, and uh, got to know them working on different you know tax policy and regulatory issues. And uh, for me, that's always been kind of where my, you know, my passion and my, you know, my interest in politics were, um, you know, and what an area that I really wanted to work on. And I philosophically, when I learned about the club, didn't even know groups like this existed, realized right away, this is exactly where my, you know, my, you know, my mindset was and what I thought was good for the state. I'm an Arizona native. I've lived here my whole life. Um, yeah, love my state. And, you know, the, the beliefs and principles that the club had were things that I, you know, gravitated towards. And so, um, you know, decided I left the home building industry, decided I wanted to, um, you know, kind of work in this space, got started doing, you know, work with the club and, um, was blessed that the, you know, some of the, you know, supporters of the club, um, chose me to be the, you know, to end up running it and started running it back in 2013, was named president of the club in 2014. And I've been, you know, I guess the rest is history, been doing it for the last several years. And, um, it's been an, it's been an interesting path. Um, you know, learning, you know, learning kind of just the different, you know, aspects of the state, how uh, learning different people and, you know, uh, doing, you know, setting out a course to do what we can to, you know, make Arizona just a free and prosperous place to live. I mean, we, you know, I think there's just something rugged and beautiful about this state. And I want to keep it that way. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that it's probably pretty rare you have three people sitting in a room that are all native Arizonans. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 
We're unicorns. <laughs> we're, we're absolutely unicorns. Everyone's always from somewhere else. Yeah, and, and, and that's you know, <clears throat> but it's kind, fine. Kind we we'll welcome them to come, pay their taxes, you know, help the economy. Yeah, just you don't know. bring the politics of bad things. Yeah, just don't California. Yeah, don't California mar Arizona. <laughs> right. Yeah, Californicate our Arizona. <laughs> Um, and that was, and that's where I was going with this next question: is that how do we, as free enterprise people, and part of our our mantra here is faith, freedom, free enterprise. Like, how do we communicate to the people who are coming here, in a, in a much more dramatic way? Hey, we understand you're leaving California. We understand you're leaving Illinois. We understand what's what's happening there, but here we have a you know this concept of freedom, this concept of free enterprise. Leave your politics. Remember why you left. You know, how do we do a better job with that? I think I think some of that is obviously the type of the leaders we get in the state. Um, a lot of our, you know, even on the elected leader side, uh, a lot of times they have the largest megaphone, and and so they can set the tone in a large degree on that, and set the even the tone on the types of debates that we're having. Um, but long term and big picture, you know, I, I think that the concept that you know politics is downstream of culture is is 100% the truth. And if you're ever going to be able to, you know, convince people or change, um, you know, change minds, and I, and I believe it's, it, you can't just say, we're gonna go win an election. It can't be winning elections. It can't be, let's go take a poll. It's, you have to change polls and you have to, you know, you have to change trajectories and you do that by, you know, I think influencing kind of the cultural mindset. And, and while there's, you know, some old natural overlap in what you see in different states, Every state has the opportunity to set their own kind of set their own tone and culture on what they're doing, and it, and it starts at the local level, I believe, and kind of works it and it bubbles up from there. And um, and so as people are coming in, if they can see that the culture and the mindset in Arizona is what we believe is what's great for the great for the community, great for the state, great for everybody, um, it'll help with that and keep that tone. And so. Um, and then, and then it flows from there. And then the type of policies you set up will continue to perpetuate that. I mean, it's um, you set policies up that you know encourage and empower you know certain groups that uh, we don't philosophically in line with. It'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy, and they'll continue to infiltrate and grow. And um, conversely, if we do the opposite, the opposite will occur. And uh, um, you know, and you can't also think that everything is just static. Um, you think about where we were 20 years ago and what an electoral college map looked compared to what it was today, compared to what it was in 1980, compared to what it was. Um, uh, you, I would say that you can't just act that everything is static. Things are dynamic. You have to look at things as something that's completely evolving and um, and uh, make sure again that you're you're not seeding ground and you're out there, you know, get putting your message out every day. And it's been, that's an important part of it, is <clears throat> just making sure that you're getting the message out. Because people generally don't pay that much attention, so you have to figure out ways to to get them to pay attention. Um, what would what would be your advice to someone kind of up and coming in how to get involved in politics or in policy or you know what what's what's some of the things that you've seen in your own life, but also in others? of good ways for people to kind of break into this? I'm not sure I'm the best person to ask for that because, you know, for me, it was kind of a complete accident that I even got into politics. Um, I didn't know anybody in the political world um, uh, when I was in college. 
knew that I had liked politics. I, I, you know, I was actually majoring in political science, but it wasn't because I ever envisioned that I would be day to day, kind of working in that in that environment. Um, and so for me, it was I got introduced to someone in politics from a law from from a, from a professor who did some law at Arizona State University. I mean, that's how I got involved. It was a complete accident, but um, was instructive to me that most things in life, um, it's not about a lot of times about your resume, about you know the contacts and the connections that you make. And politics is a very social environment. In fact, everything that we talk about it ends up becoming um, has some sort of social construct to it. And so, if I was going to advise anybody, it'd be you have to get out and make friends and talk to people and and um, get involved. Um, whether it be basic things, whether it be you know at the school board level or whatever things you're doing, you'll be surprised how small the world is. Yeah. And everything comes back together, and so and so knows so and so who knows so and so that oh by the way, you know they're they're looking to do something, or you just get involved in something like that. It works, you know, and and you know you get more involved at that level. Maybe you run for the school board. Next thing you know, you're doing something else if you want to work on that side of it. And so, you know, my advice always is is just you know make sure you develop a good social network. Get out, and meet people. Don't sit behind your computer. Yeah, that's great advice. Because really, if there's anything that it was obviously even before COVID, the the advent of social media and the isolation um, of people, and then COVID happen, happens, it's even worse now. And it's funny because I think people sit by on their computer, they're on Facebook, they're on Twitter, they think that they're socializing, but they're really not. Because you say things online that you would never say to somebody face to face, I think. And, and it, it just the personal interaction I think is super important to developing relationships and understanding how people think and their work ethic and that kind of thing. Yeah, I guess, I mean, it, it's one thing if you want to go out there and do that. If you want to be a TikTok star, I guess you can go be a TikTok <laughs> star. Um, to each his own. Um, I'm, not a, you know, I'm not into the influencer world. I'll let other people be experts on that. So what you're saying is that you're not, you know, the free enterprise club is not on TikTok very much. <laughs> well, Scott, Scott Musi is not on TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do not have an Instagram. That's not my, none of those things. I have a Facebook account and uh um, obviously, those those elements, in, in all seriousness, all those elements are important. You have to be engaging on those those mediums because, again, that's where a lot of the culture is at. You have to be involved, um, and so you know our organization and others make sure that they're engaging on those fields. Um, at the same time, personally, that's not my that's not my <laughs> and, jam. <laughs> and yet, I mean, there's there's I mean, your staff. It's you. There's like two other people. Um, we have we have five people. Five people now. You should just be two. When I joined, when I first joined the club, it was just one person on staff. It was okay. me. It was you. Yes. So I mean, that's been a tremendous success over the last. I mean, since two thousand, you said thirteen. Mm-hmm. I mean, what you've built from really grassroots, and and yeah, some of the most prominent Arizonans are on, on that board, and and had this vision, and and now I mean, the consequential work that you're doing is is really amazing. Do you ever just kind of look around and go, how did this happen? Sometimes, um, it's it's interesting, and and uh, you know anybody that's kind of did this, you know, you know, been in this line of work. Sean's been doing this for a long, long time. Um, it is especially at the state level. Most of the actions at the federal level. Most people, sure. uh, that's where a lot of the attention is. That's where most people kind of look to when they're discussing this state level politics. You know, capital politics. Um, it's a little bit tougher to get 
you know, historically has been ideological, philosophical people that share our values to get them involved. Um, the good news is that's changed a lot in the last couple of years. Um, a lot more people have realized how important um, state and local politics are, and they're getting more engaged um, and has helped, you know, helped with our growth as an organization. Um, because, you know, these types of, we're not affiliated with any other group. Um, Arizona Free Enterprise Club is an independent. We're, you know, we're focused on state and local issues. And so, you know, for us to people to support our organization, they need to be, you know, wanting to, you know, that needs to be where their, their mind is at. And uh, um, it's been a lot of hard work and we're very proud of what we've been able to build here. I look around to their states, other ones that have similar models. Some states have things that are similar to the club, but usually they're in states like Texas or Florida, huge, I mean, states that are four or five times our size. So um, you look around, you don't find a lot of other free enterprise clubs in other states. Yeah. And it's been a unique, <clears throat> a unique success for Arizona. I think that you you guys have led some really important reforms in Arizona. Obviously, this tax uh, reform that just was signed yesterday, leading you know among the top of the uh, successes that you can cite. What um, what do you when you look at where things are going in Arizona and maybe nationally, but particularly in Arizona, what? What kind of things do you see over the horizon as far as issues that we're going to face as a state? I think the the, the next battleground um, that we're going to see is, 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 and it's always been an issue, but I think the, the landscape has changed. I think COVID has accelerated this, um, has been the relationship of um, taxpayers and parents with their, with their K-12 system. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always been this, this um, you know, this, you know, fight over what we do, the future of education, um, what model is best. Um, we've always believed we want to empower parents and kids the most, and it's why we believe money should be tied to tied to students, not not systems. Um, uh, but a lot of that debate happens a lot of times in a more of a theoretical theoretical environment. It's not real world. Most people have went to a public school. It's kind of what they know. Um, most people want to be deferential. Have historically wanted to be deferential to their district schools. Um, and I think all that's changed. Um, COVID had a huge impact on that. I think a lot of parents saw firsthand what was going on in their schools, um, were frustrated by, you know, teachers, frankly, declaring themselves non-essential employees and not going to work while everybody else was going back to work. Um, it was very confusing to people. I think people were frustrated that, you know, they wouldn't get a paycheck if they just sat at home, but it appears that some people that have guaranteed paychecks don't think they need to go to work anymore. Um, and so I think that element's changed things quite a bit. Um, and then you throw in really kind of this exposure on the type of curriculum that's being taught in our schools. I mean, there's always been this, there, there's always been instances where it's gotten flagged where, you know, kind of, you know, schools have gotten out of line with what they've been teaching in their curriculum, but it's never been to the point where it is now, where parents firsthand are seeing what's happening. I think now what we're seeing with critical race theory and these other radical ideologies that are just getting rammed down the throats of, of these uh, parents, um, and they're seeing it firsthand. These districts are adopting it whole cloth on, on these types of things. Um, that That is where the next battleground is going to be, and what the future looks like, and how do we address it? Can it be addressed with trying to fix K-12? Is that what the, the public eventually is going to go with, or is it going to be in a direction where they, you know, they decide, you know what, it's time that we, we move to a different model and say, look, we'll just find schools that we want to that we feel comfortable and we want to work with. Right. Um, heck, I mean, even just looking at the numbers, there's already been a decline in K-12 enrollment. 
Um, they're still looking for the quote missing kids that they don't know where they're at. They're, I'll let you know a secret. They're not missing. Right. Most of those kids are at home with their parents and they're being homeschooled, which is another element of this. Homeschooling's gone through the roof. Um, it's it, it's been one of the most destabilizing things in that respect in a generation um, for our K twelve system and for our education system. And to me, is where where one of the big battle lines are going to be drawn over the next 10 years. I, I really think that this last couple of years where we saw the Red for Ed, Prop 2 and everything, I, I think that was the high watermark for K-12 on what they've been trying to do. Um, you know, honestly, they've seen the writing on the wall, whether it be with charter schools and everything else, that they're, they're every year they're, they're, losing, they're losing enrollment, they're losing everything else. I think at this point, it's going to be, everything's going to be just a kind of steady decline on their, their clout and influence in the political process. And I, I agree with you. I, it's one of the things that has been amazing when people talk about education reform. The, the education system in Arizona is insanely complex. It's not like you can, like when you talk about the money should follow the student, not the system. There's so many different pieces of, you know, pots of money that are being pulled from. I mean, is it even possible to untangle all that? How long would that, that, that would, that's probably something that's going to take years to unwind. Right. Yeah. Um, there's two elements of it. One is what you're describing, which is what the full school finance system. And then the other element of, well, let's just let's just give money to, you know, assign money, give people, you know, an ESA or some sort of other, you know, whatever you want to call it, a voucher where they can go where they go. They want to go to school. Um, uh, I think you can do the latter without completely having to do the former. But both are important. If you can fix school finance, which some of that has to do with you're in school district, your kids in school district A, Johnny's in school district B, and just because he happens to be in school district B, he gets two thousand dollars more per year for that district for that kid than that one. Well, why is that kid worth two thousand more than that kid? Um, we believe that funding should be equitable. Every student's worth the same. Obviously, you have special needs kids and others that you do need more resources, but that's a separate issue. Um, just because you happen to live on one side of the street doesn't mean your kid should get less money than the other. Um, and we should do everything we can to fix those those equity issues. Um, but I, I only think they need to be corrected to a certain extent. Um, we can move to a model where we're, we're fu directly funding parents and families and kids. Um, and it can be done um, without having to completely unwind um, everything in our school, you know, finance model, property taxes, you know, local levies and all that, which is, it is, it's a big hornet's nest, um, but it can be done. Then that's why you do what you need to do on the equity, but at the end of the day, what I, we believe full bore, you've got to go in and make sure that we're, we're prioritizing parents and families and not school districts and unions and other people. They're not the, they're not the priority. Yeah, they shouldn't be. I mean, it, it's it's the the incentives are all completely backwards because superintendents and districts are, you know, they want to build empires, and so it's they'll do bonds, they'll do whatever. And you see all these positions and buildings and things that are unnecessary when it comes to actually educating kids. Yeah, and and the thing is, is that there are there are some good, actually good, well-run school districts in Arizona. Some very poor-run ones. Um, it, our, our belief is, is yeah, there, there's, there's space for both as far as districts and, and private schools and charters. Um, but just let the successful ones succeed and let the other ones figure something out. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you see this where, you know, you have a district like Tucson Unified, which is 
just a rolling disaster on uh, multiple reasons. Are, are they, you saying are you saying that because I'm sitting right here? Yes, <laughs> had had to live under the auspices of Tucson Unified School District for I, some twenty years and grew went to elementary school, one of the better performing schools. Yeah, one of the better performing I, schools. It's good that you can read. <laughs> it's, it's it's a miracle, really. Uh, but, but then you and you and again you look at others. There's other districts that do do a pretty good job. But um, let the ones that succeed get the kids and get the money, and the, let it follow the money and do it that way. Well, that was always the big debate down in Tucson, anyway. And and that is, well, we need to spend more money on education. When when really you can't. Nobody could explain why a flowing wells school district was so high performing in a really relatively poor area of town and TUSD was such a disaster. And one of the reasons why it was such a disaster and continues to be a disaster is too big. There's no way to manage its complexity, what we just talked about. It's just too big. And so the, you know, one one of those reforms, uh, especially for these large districts, has to be the breakup of the districts to make them more accountable and more attuned to parents and students. Because the, the, the big, big districts, that model just doesn't work anymore if you're going to have any sort of public K through 12 education. And then I would argue, you know, Arizona with the advents of, you know, ESAs um, and char charter schools, which have exploded, really have led the way in, in, in productive means of educating our kids. I mean, we have some of the, the highest performing charter schools in the, in the country, consistently in the top 20. And yet, if you talk to the red for ed people, they say we have the you know we don't spend enough on education. Everything, yeah, everything to them. It's it's a one solution to every problem, which yeah. is this money. We need more money, and yeah. uh, um, it, it, and even what you're describing there, as far as these districts and different ones. The interesting thing is, is we've you know a lot for charter schools. We have a lot for these alternative options. Um, it it's allowed to an incredible amount of innovation. Um, well, but open enrollment too. Open has, enrollment has as completely rip the Band-Aid off of K through 12 in, in many districts because pe parents can walk. It's, it's amazing. I mean, one of the, one of the ones that we all love to love to take a look at every year pre-pandemic was uh, the relationship of, of uh, you know, Phoenix U uh, Union um, to Glendale Un uh, Union District, um, where you would have these parents that live in the Phoenix District would go over to Glendale and get in line at Sunny Slope to go to their high school over there. Now, now that's the district to district and what you're describing the open yeah. enrollment. And they're lining up to do that. Phoenix gets about $2,500 more per pupil in funding than Glendale. So that means you have parents yeah. that are willingly taking their kids to another school where they're theoretically getting $2,500 less to educate their child and they're choosing to make that choice. And this again, isn't district to charter or district to private. This is district to district. Um, and it's because Glendale's in you know, Sunny Slope, especially, is a better, better high school, a better functioning district than Phoenix. And well, you see that in Tucson too, with TUSD and Vail, you know, completely, or or even even a flowing wells. Yeah, right. and we just think the money should follow them. I mean, Phoenix, you know, the, Phoenix should not just be able to sit back and just continue to get these types of resources while offering a substandard product that's so bad that parents are forced to set up tents and wait outdoors um, to see if they can get, you know, get a slot at Sunny Slope, which is, it, it's you know, amazing. That, that's not a system that is, and, is for parents. That's a system that's a system that's working against parents. Yeah, and then you'll, you'll have teachers or teachers unions that rip on charter schools like a basis or like a Great Hearts and say they're not real schools and they shouldn't exist. 
And yet there, you've, to your point, people lining up to get their kids in, in, in those schools. All of the charters, um, all the charters out there right now, by and large, have wait lists. Wait lists, trying to, you know, people begging to get their kids into these schools. Um, it is amazing. Um, again, the, the post-pandemic world, um, I, I don't think that, the, again, the traditional districts, I don't think that they're ready for what's going to be happening. Yeah. Well, and, and, and rightfully so, because even during the pandemic and the lockdowns, most of those schools and some faith-based schools as well decide to stay open and do whatever they can to, to, to stay open. I mean, here in, here in Phoenix, bases, Great Hearts Academies, all those, all those different charter schools that exist were open. And they, they mitigated the best they could with the science that, or the information and data they had before them. And so you had all these people who, who were trapped in non-performing K through 12, you know, public schools looking across the street going, wait, 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 what, yeah, right. why, why are they open? And they have just as many students as we do and we can't be open. Well, it's because they can't, the teachers are staying home. They're protected by the unions. Right. Scott, before you, before we <clears throat> lose you today or have you go, talk to us about whatever, what other successes uh, you guys had at the legislature this year now that we're you know the, the session is now over officially um yeah i'll uh, i'll talk actually a little bit about was um, this the longest session ever well i i know that we've gone up to the end of the fiscal year before back during the napolitano years uh we had a couple of sessions where it went right up to the june 30th deadline on on um you know approving a budget and then there was the infamous year-round session under Jam Brewer, where it wasn't technically year-round. They ended up signing dime, but then they just kept going to special session because That's right. I remember that. Uh, Governor Brewer at the time really wanted a tax increase, and the legislature was against it, and um, it went on forever. And so, um, so the, but this was one of the longest. It was the longest, at least in a in a decade, um, in a little over a decade. So, uh, long journey, but uh, actually a lot of a lot of good successes. A few clunkers. There's always going to be clunkers. Um, but a lot of good successes. Uh, um, one of the more, um, you know, enjoyable things to to see was um, some of the, uh, you know, some of the election integrity um, legislation that we were able to get passed this year. Um, things that we've been working on for years. I mean, it was kind of interesting to see how everybody wanted to wrap it in that this was just about the 2020 election. Um, there were actually, you know, issues that we've flagged for years prior to that on issues that needed to be addressed. Um, whether it be dealing with, um, you know, cleaning up of our voter rolls, uh, making sure that we have some oversight, um, you know, some transparency. Uh, uh, those are things that we, you know, we believe are important. They should happen. They should be nonpartisan and everybody should be supporting it. But it seems that if you want to make sure people, for example, have, you know, pr provide ID when they vote, um, that's controversial, even though poll after poll shows 80% of people support, you know, providing ID. So, uh, but specifically, we got some language to clean up our voter rolls. Um, uh, language was included in the budget to provide for the Auditor General of the state of Arizona. They will go in and, and randomly audit uh, counties and their voter registration rules, um, uh, go around the state and do that to make sure that they're following the laws. Um, something that we always like to point out is, is we actually have passed pretty decent laws when it comes to making sure our voter registration rules are up to date. But there's never been any sort of oversight or no checkup, enforcement. no enforcement of it. You just have to say, are we going to trust the, the county or the county recorder that they're actually doing what they're supposed to be doing? Um, and if they're not, we wouldn't even know. Um, and so now the auditor general will be able to go in and they actually can do a review and conduct a review of that. Um, and then one other one on the transparency side that we loved is you have these voter registration drives that are always 
um, participated in by local, you know, by the counties and going out there and doing that. Um, we noticed a pretty interesting trend in Maricopa County that it seemed that every event that the county was showing up at was um, an event by some far left Democrat group. Um, and so we took a deeper dive and it found out that they attended around 80 events. All of but like three of them were for liberal or leftist causes. And so um, we put language in there to basically make require that all of the counties have to provide that information to the state, um, to the legislature, and they can catalog it to see if our taxpayer money is being used to actually make sure we're registering voters. And it's a it's a you know nonpartisan fair process, or is this a system that's been kind of taken over by a few niche groups that are going out there and using it to um, you know goose the registration numbers for a certain political party? Right. Right. <clears throat> That's good. It, it, your, your point about this is stuff that you've been working on for years is what drives me crazy when people say, well, we can't do election reform until after the, the Maricopa County audit is done because we don't know what, <clears throat> you know what changes need to be done. Well, we, all, we know that the audit's a joke. It's, it's a fiasco. We know what needs to be changed. I mean, you pointed those things out. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out because I think that um, – the well, the the Supreme Court today uh, ruled in favor of the legislation uh, that that passed a few years ago, which prohibits ballot harvesting, and yeah, also says if you don't vote in your precinct, your vote doesn't count. Well, imagine that. <laughs> it, no, that was a that was a pretty um, pretty transformative ruling. That was wait, a you mean I can't go across town and go vote? Oh, but yeah, but, but I work over here. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, you can just hand your ballot off to that random guy that comes to your right, door. Right. Yeah. Um, Who knocks, is, on, knocks on your door, gives you the ballot, and says, here, fill it out this way, and you can give it back to me. We, I mean, we had video of people going in and just dropping off, you know, uh, you know boxes full of ballots um, the day of, and it, with no idea whether they came from them, how they acquired those ballots, just dropping them off. Um, that that's not a system that inspires confidence. And, and that's something that, you know, when we talk about the elections here in Arizona, and one of the concerns that we've always had was what, what we saw in 2020 and the, the, I think some of the people that have grown extremely suspicious about our elections is we kind of saw that as, you know, you know, that was always the ultimate result of the system that we kind of had set up and that we needed to put stuff in place, safeguards in place um, to make sure that, you know, whenever, you know, that we had a system that people can trust and have faith in. Um, our biggest fear is only a matter of time that we're going to have a close election. And one way or another, it could have been the Republicans or the Democrats. I mean, people want to make it sound like, you know, Donald Trump was the first to ever, you know, say that election was stolen and it was election fraud. Um, somebody should page Stacey Abrams down in, yep. down in Georgia. And um, who never, she's, she's the governor because she never conceded. She, you know. <laughs> she never conceded. And, you know, as everybody knows, it wasn't Trump that won in 2016. It was Russia. And, uh, you know, it was all, you know, heck, we... Yeah, went, Madam, went, Madam Lafarge is still... Yeah. <laughs> still crowing on that. We went up, we, that, and that took up three years of, almost three years of, of uh, our time dealing with all that to the point where people thought that it was, you know, almost in the bag that there was collusion. And so um, this idea that this was anything new, it's not... Um, but we just need a system that people can have faith in and believe in. And, um, you know, our hope is there's still some there's still some things that we need to get done. I think um, we still have a lot of work to do on our voter ID laws um, here in Arizona. But uh, by and large, I think we made a lot of good improvements and and we'll see what comes out of the audit. I mean, we'll see what they if they uncover anything. And then 
Um, waiting till after the audit was done, we never believed in that because we already knew, as you mentioned, Sean, that there was there's reforms and fixes that needed to happen. Yeah, yeah. I think that I I, I have said um, on occasion. Look, I am. I'll, we'll make voting as easy as humanly possible. In Arizona, it's very easy to vote here. I mean, it's way easier in Arizona than it is in other states um, as far as accessibility and just the, the broad, because we have early voting and sign up for people or whatever it's going to be called down, automatically it's your ballot sent to you. I am, I am for everyone having the easiest way possible to vote as long as we have ID. I mean, it's just, that is the one thing that I think is the ultimate safeguard. I mean, you have to have ID for everything you do in society. Why not vote? It's one of the more important things, of the more important civic duties that we have. Um, it just seems crazy. So I would be, you know, I'm not so certain I'd just send a ballot to everybody. I think they ought to actually ask for it. But even then, as long as they have ID, let's vote it back. Yeah, so I think your ID point is is one that I and and, I, and like you said um, nationally it's plus eighty percent of people because it just inherently makes sense that you want to know that the person who says that they're voting this ballot is the person that's voting this ballot. Well, but the other point is that it protects your vote. Yeah. Right. You know, you're, you're you're verifying that you're the person that's voting, and you don't want anybody else saying that they're you. Mm-hmm. And voting for whatever reason, I mean, and that's that's really the concern. Yeah, and that's why I mean, if if you are going to have a system where you are mailing ballots to people, there has to be an ID component. This idea that it's yeah. just a signature ver- ver- verification check, um, you know, is from in many respects is a little absurd. Handwriting changes. Um, you're either going to have a system in place that's going to be so restrictive on the verification that it's going to be invalidating tons of ballots because, again, signatures are subjective, or you're going to have such loose standards that you're going to let stuff through. You're going to have to. Um, you're talking about you know hundreds of thousands, millions of ballots coming in that way. And so um, it makes sense to have some sort of ID component. Every time you do business with your bank or other things, they're always giving you some sort of unique verification code um, to make sure, and it's a, a objective number or whatever that code is, whatever the password is, um, to make sure you are who you say you are. There's no reason we shouldn't have some sort of objective identification standard when you vote by mail. It just yeah. makes sense. Agreed. Yeah, and, and we're one of the states that has a very, very robust you know, vote by mail system that's worked for, I mean, relatively well for a long time. Yeah. So however we can improve that and, and to protect the integrity of the vote, protect your right to vote, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Cool. Well, Scott, thank you so much for... Yeah, we time. could we could keep going, but we're running out of time. <laughs> well, we'll definitely yeah. have we'll definitely have you back because I think there's you know obviously yeah. what there's are we going to do next year, <laughs> and then and then you know we'll be dealing with ballot initiatives and those kind of things. So we're going to have plenty to talk about yeah. in the future. So and for people who are listening, where they where can they find you? Yeah, if you want to uh, learn more about our organization, you can visit our website at www.azfree.org. Um, you can look us up there and uh, learn a little more about our organization. If you want to ever get involved, um, you can uh, join our grassroots, uh, you know, our grassroots team. Our, we call them our club enforcers. Um, you can sign up there and um, through that, if you want to um, join our network, and uh, you can you know attend events. Also, 
um, you know, help us out at the legislature. We're always looking for people to get to sign in on bills, um, to contact their lawmakers. And, um, you know, we've, we've tried to set up a process and system that makes it as easy as possible for anybody to get involved. We call it the armchair advocacy. And so uh, we want to make it so that even if you're sitting at your sitting on a couch at home, that you can, you know, bug your lawmaker if they're doing something that they shouldn't be doing. Yeah, I, I just want to make a comment that, that a lot of the grassroots technologies that you've put in place um, have been really dramatic because, I, you know, I think back in the day, people looked at Free Enterprise Club as, oh, it's that, you know, it's that tax group, whatever they are. And, and now I think there's a lot of people in the legislature that really pay attention to when you guys are, are, are on something and they don't want to get in your crosshairs. Because they know they they could lose support almost instantly. It's yeah no, it, and, it, and it helps when you have an engaged an engaged you know citizen group that's wanting to do that. It yeah. makes a big difference. And we tell our um, we tell all of our supporters and activists that um, they're they're really the engine that makes it go. Because um, you know that you can you can go down and talk to lawmakers. You can go down and and you know tell them that something's a good idea or a bad idea. But when they're hearing from real people in their district, that has an impact. Yeah. Big yeah. impact. Like it. All politics is local. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, keep up the good work, Scott. We yeah. love what you're thanks doing. Thanks so much. Yep. Thank thanks you for, for having me. Yeah. Thanks Great. for being here. Thanks, everybody. See you.